Hello and welcome to the special edition of the Opticus Extras podcast. My name is Luba Kim Reynolds and I lead the multifamily investor relations team and ESG initiatives here at Freddie Mac. One of the most exciting parts of my job is uncovering the needs of our investor community and making sure these needs are aligned to and in partnership with our real estate sponsors and the larger Freddie Mac team. And that's exactly how our Impact Bond series were born. In 2019, we launched our environmentally focused green bond series. And last year, we introduced social and sustainability bonds to our impact offerings, rounding out the full suite of ESG initiatives. We have been supporting affordable housing for quite some time now. And I like to say that our mission is a part of our DNA. Impact bonds help to bring upfront and channel the capital towards the most impactful projects. I'm often asked about our social bonds. Why we do them if we are already in the impact space? I like to tell people that every social bond has a unique impact story behind it, in addition to being an affordable housing. And that story is what I would like to focus on in this episode. Today's podcast will provide a closer look at the socially focused project, a critical solution in helping underserved population. Housing for the intellectually and developmentally disabled, otherwise known as HIT. And to help learn more about the big picture, I will be talking with two of our partners, Tony and Matt, and our very own Andrew. I will let them introduce themselves and tell us how they've started in this business it will give a greater insight why they're so passionate about this product. Thanks, Luba. Uh, my name is Andrew Tush, and I co-head the Structured Target Affordable Housing team here at Freddie Mac. Um, one of the areas that we focus on and one of the products that we lead is the uh, the HID loans, uh, which is, again, the housing for intellectually and developmentally disabled individuals. And so what this means is providing housing and up to 24-hour care to adults with special needs, including traumatic brain injuries, uh, those with behavioral or and or developmental disabilities. Um, within the HID space, uh, the sponsor is the one who operates and uh, owns, holds, manages the homes which are leased then to healthcare service providers um, in order to provide housing for individuals with behavioral and or developmental disabilities. And this this structure allows the care providers or the leasees uh, to prevent capital from being tied up in real estate holdings and really allow them the time and resource to be focused on the resident care needs uh, at these homes. Um, A little bit of background as to how we got into this space. Uh, starting in the, the kind of early to mid 2010s, there were some uh, some reports released at the federal level um, that started to raise some concerns about housing options for uh, individuals with disabilities. So this started to put the issue on our radar and thinking about housing options in safe community settings versus more traditional kind of institutional housing that has been used or that had been used historically. Freddie Mac's entry into this specialty segment of the market really goes back to what our TAH group's focus is, which is supporting affordable housing and more specifically, housing for underserved communities and populations. Um, In terms of how we got started into this, just at a very high level, we started looking at 
what available capital sources there were for the sponsors in this segment. Uh, the types of, of housing sponsors uh, are providing for these individuals, uh, the care providers, and finally, you know, really focusing on understanding the safety and the level of care standards for this for this segment. Great. Well, thank you, Andrew. And uh, Tony, I know you really have been championing this product, and uh, I know you did uh, a lot of work to really making sure so, uh, this product is taking off and taking off in the right way. Do you mind to give us a little bit um, of your background, how you got into it, how your company is involved, and uh, would love to learn a little bit more what are the players in the industry? Sure. So I um, I started uh, in, in, the, in the affordable housing space in the mid-80s uh, with, a, with a very high specialty uh, underwriting tax exempt uh uh, taxes and bonds that supported uh, various types of affordable housing. And that adventure um, sort of led me to uh, a variety of things that were either first of a kind, one of a kind, or near first of a kind in terms of structuring in the space. I was sort of there early in the tax credit business, early in the bond business. And um, in 2009, after the financial, or you know, right after I was doing still suffering from the financial crisis, uh, I was contacted by uh, a group that uh, had been in this space for some time, and they were getting traditional single-family mortgages on every every one of their houses, um, and had at the time about 800 houses. I don't know how many individual mortgages they had, but. Um, they had about 800 houses, and the regulators, uh, post financial crisis, had sort of put a stop to them getting you know, your typical 30-year single-family loan on a house that was leased to a care provider taking care of these types of individuals. So I was contacted as perhaps somebody that could figure out a way to take that product, which was a scattered site, um, and put it into an affordable multi-family framework for uh for either uh fannie Mae or freddie mac and uh at that time i had very good relationships i've done a lot of business with both of the agencies i called them both up and and explained to them at a very high level what was going on and would they be interested and at the time both of them were uh, very very interested in, in pursuing this kind of thing because of the affordability and the tenants served, but unfortunately, the uh, the regulators had and the agencies had, had realized, you know, no new products right now. We're just coming out of a crisis, um, and so we kept that on the the back burner. Uh, fast forward to 2015, um, uh, I was contacted by that same group who had uh, um, who had heard from the regulators that maybe now was the time. And uh, I called my partners over at Freddie Mac uh, and explained what it was. It was a gentleman who has since, since left the business, but been there for a long time. And I'll never forget what he said. He says, yeah, we know all about this. We love this. Um, we have another group out of Chicago, Capitals on the phone, that we're currently looking at, at something like this. He said, but we can't find a, you know, a partner who really understands it's willing to do all the heavy lifting uh, to sort of put these scattered multifamily sites, I'm sorry, single family sites into a multifamily form. 
And at that point is when I met uh, uh, CapGrow, and we ended up doing our first transaction uh, in December of 15, and have done numerous additional ones with them and, and some others in the space. It's, it's not a very big space. There's, there's, a, there's you know, a small handful of providers that have size. There's a lot of uh, providers, borrowers, I should say, people that own the houses. There's a lot of uh, entities and people that own lots of houses, but in small sizes. So it becomes, you know, uh, difficult to find, you know, to have one, just one single house and get financing is, is difficult in, in this space. The, the players like CapGrow have, you know, have accumulated lots of homes and we're going to hear from, from Matt shortly. Um, and it, it just it becomes more um, uh, more efficient to have big groups of homes to, to do these types of financings. But it's a it's a terrific you know really interesting uh, very beneficial um, type of space. It, it appears to be growing. There appears to be some current legislation being proposed about expanding sort of the funding sources for these groups. Um, and the other sort of unique thing about it is it seems like uh, everybody knows somebody um, who, who may need these types of need this types of housing. And um, it's just very important to do. And so Procadia and myself are very committed to, uh, to, to furthering the program. And thank you, Tony, and uh, very impressive accomplishments in this area. And Matt, I know when we were preparing for uh, this podcast, you shared uh, a great personal story, how you got into this business, how it's important to you. If you don't mind, would you lo- we would love for you to share the story with the audience here, as well as to give some background, um, what you do at CapGrow and CapGrow itself. I, I think you have a pretty unique uh growth story and a lot of accomplishments that you achieved. Absolutely. Thank you, Luba. Um, For those who are listening, my name is Matt Pettinelli. I'm the founder and CEO of CapGrow Partners. Uh, We are based in Chicago, um, but own and lease assets to the behavioral health community on a national basis. Um, My foray into uh, the HID market uh, started very young. Uh, my uh, both my parents are social workers. Um, my father uh, was brought in to run a group home uh, operation in the late seventies, um, and my mother had devoted a tremendous amount of her time to volunteering uh, for children who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. So from a very early age, I was exposed. Um, to individuals with IDD and most and more importantly to the community-based housing uh, solutions that my father and his company were offering um, at that time predominantly in the Midwest. Um, over time, my father grew that operation to be the largest in the country um, and uh, often struggled with the real estate component that is a primary uh, vehicle for serving the needs of these individuals in the community, um, they reluctantly owned the real estate. Um, It was a product of not being able to identify an appropriate or willing 
uh, owner of such real estate, which were single family homes and continue to be, um, and to lease them to my father's company. Um, and the primary reason is because the uh, you know landlords, for lack of a better term, would ask, well, who who will be living in the in the homes? And my father and his company would say, well, we you know we serve adults with uh, intellectual and developmental disability, and they they will live in the homes, and we will have twenty four hour staff and and the staff although not being live-in staff that's on a rotational um you know they will make sure that the home is cared for um and that would always you know create somewhat of a sideways look and then the second question would be well where do you get your funding or or how how are you going to pay me and my father would say well we are predominantly funded through uh medicaid and ssi well as soon as those two components uh were mentioned uh any and every landlord would say yeah we're not dealing with the government and uh we're not comfortable with the individuals that will live in the home we've heard you know horror stories about uh their actions and behaviors and it was just it was very unfortunate and um so I saw the operations side uh, firsthand and had opted not to go into the operations. Um, it is a very difficult and trying business, but uh, very rewarding when done very well, um, which my father's company did. Um, he sold again that company in 1999. So I went off and did my own thing. And after about six years of uh, trying to figure out where I wanted to spend my career, I continued to come back to um, what my parents had devoted so much of their time and resources to, and that was serving this unique population. Um, I knew of this void of wanting to and needing uh, appropriate housing solutions in the community. Um, and I thankfully was naive enough uh, and, and inexperienced enough to say, well, I can do that. Um, I grew up in a family uh, that devoted their time to this. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Um, by golly, I, I think I can do it. And uh, had known of some other groups that had some moderate success, but um, being young and confident, believed that I could do it much better um, and, at a, and on a larger scale. So off I went. Um, it really, uh, 2005 at the end of that calendar year was the formation of the company and I quit my job um, and started it full-time out of my house in Chicago um, in the early part of 2006. This is really great. And uh, thank you, Matt, for your determination. And I think it was one of those perfect intersections when you took your personal experience, you really saw the vision and opportunity and all of that got transformed into really growing this product. So really, really excited and happy to see it. And since I have you on the spot here, let's just dive in a little bit deeper into the real estate itself. Uh, if you can just tell a little bit to the audience what this product actually is what it looks like when you get into the house itself how it is equipped like as much information if you can give us will be much appreciated absolutely um so we focus predominantly on single family assets um, the homes that we own nationally um, currently we cover uh 39 states um the homes that we own, you would never know that they're uh, leased to behavioral health providers that serve adults with a behavioral health condition. Um, they look just like every home on the block. Um, the only 
if you will, giveaway might be a uh, van that has an extended roof um, to appropriately transport uh, individuals who are non-ambulatory. Um, but other than that, from the outside, uh, you might not even realize that it is what is commonly re referred to as a group home. Um, that's the point of this whole uh, program. The, the, the program is to give these individuals an opportunity to be integrated in the community. Um, the alternative option for them is to live in a larger congregate setting, often referred to as an institutional setting. Um, that has proved to be not the most uh, advantageous way to further their personal uh, development. Um, and so the providers allow them oftentimes to have a bedroom for the very first time in their life. And uh, many of these individuals are in their 30s and 40s, um, and they are given their own bedroom and their own space. Um, so they're usually four to six bed homes, uh, commonly single story. Um, they will be single sex, um, so all male or all female. Um, dependent upon their mobility restrictions, there may be um, internally uh, a need to widen some hallways and doorways to better accommodate wheelchair, wheelchair access. And outside of uh, very simple regulatory and certification needs like fire suppression systems or up, upgraded alarm systems so that if someone were to open a door, um, the staff is alerted um, just to uh, for the own protection of the residents, of course, um, the homes don't have to be modified greatly. Um, and again, sometimes there are more modifications than not dependent upon the mobility and uh, cognitive level of the individuals living in the home. But that's that's what we focus on. And we, we do this um, all day, every day, all across the country. We are agnostic to location. Um, we, do, we, we fulfill a demand uh, that is brought to us by the provider organization. They know where the most appropriate uh, location and the most appropriate need will be for the individuals that they will ultimately serve in the home. Um, the state will contact the provider organization and say, uh, can you uh, bring online you know, uh, six homes uh, to fill, uh, we'll put four people in each home, and then that provider organization tells the state hang on one second, they'll call us and say, hey, Capgro, um, are you able to buy six homes for us in, in this particular part of the country in the next uh, 45 to 60 days? We say, yep, no problem, let's go. And then they hang up with us and get back on the phone with the state and say, we're good to go, we can make this happen. Um, our process, of course, isn't that simple related to uh, the uh, validation and review of the provider organization. We are very specific and careful about who we work with because we do operate from afar. So we need to make sure that we're entering into a uh, lease contract with a qualified and proven uh, organization. So we go through a financial review. Um, if we need, we will review those financials on an annual basis. Um, but most importantly is we know these providers personally. We are constantly traveling uh, all over the country and meeting with the provider organizations that are of size and scale um, 
one-on-one -on -one at trade shows, at various uh, you know, industry opportunities. So we truly get to know them personally. We know their executive team um, and we know what their mission is. We know what the goal is. They get to know us. And so when they do call us, we're already pretty comfortable with uh, the program that they are operating and more importantly, the financial stability of their organization. But they're absolutely is a bit of an underwriting process, but it's something that we have streamlined very well um, and that we have proved to be very successful with over the last 15 plus years. Um, but to put it into context, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of, of provider agencies that support individuals with IDD and TBI and other behavioral health needs across the country. We focus on less than 50. Um, so we, we are very selective um, and we work with the best of the best. Um, and that is important to us. So it's, it's about uh, quantity, yes, but more importantly, it's about uh, quality. And we want to make sure that we are with the groups that are providing superior service to the individuals. Because really, at the end of the day, the provider agency, as well as my company, CapGrow, is focused specifically on providing the best and most appropriate community-based housing solution that we can. Um, can I add something there sure. to that, Matt? So one of, one of the things that's, that's important in this process is that it's a very highly regulated um, uh, it's, it's a very highly regulated industry, obviously taking care of this type of uh, clientele, um, you know, you, you need to have some good oversight. So at, at each state, each state does it differently. Sometimes they do it at the state level, sometimes they do it at the county level, sometimes it's both. And uh, all of these care providers are, are licensed um, and accredited. They require um, as far as the real estate, they're, they're, they're some, I've done a lot of review in all these different states. Um, some of these states have up to four uh, inspections. Usually they can be random inspections and they're showing up not just to look at, um, you know, the, the house, but to make sure that the tenants are being taken care of. And I always like the story that Matt told years ago about, uh, about the best, the best uh, inspection is from a family member. Because, you know, the, though some of these uh, people may have family that have passed um, and, and that's part of the reason why they're in the house, um, they, they still do have family and extended family and friends who, who keep con in contact with them. And Matt has told the story a few times to me about, you know, having a, a family member show up in a house and not be happy about, you know, one thing or another that might be very small and, um, and, and, and make sure that they're taken care of. So it's important to note the, 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 the big oversight um, uh, by, by certain regulations and regulators for these particular houses. Very, very great insight here. Very, uh, as you can tell, very specialized asset class here. Um, so Andrew, at Freddie Mac, we pride ourselves in our credit standards, in our in-house credit decisions, as well as trying to figure out some of those unique situations as this product is. Do you mind to give us a little bit of a behind the scene inside how we look into underwriting this type of deals and uh, we feel comfortable doing them? Sure. As, as you noted, and, and uh, Matt and Tony note, you know, this is a specialized segment of the, uh, the multifamily housing market. 
Um, so we have some some nuances, I think, that we consider um, that's different for this versus some of the other traditional multifamily loans that were originating. Um, you know, so outside of what I'll call the typical loan credit metrics of you think about LTV and debt coverage and those type of things, you know, some of the things that we are really focused on is uh, or are who the care providers are for the underlying homes, um, what their track record is. Um, we obviously look at, at the sponsorship track record. Um, you know, Matt has been uh, Matt and Capgrew have been you know, probably one of the, uh, the longest tenured operators in this segment and, um, have seen a lot of things that, that, you know, we are actually able to, to learn from, from Matt's experience. Um, so sponsorship track record is important. Um, you look at the lease terms between, you know, the sponsor and the care provider. Um, so it's a little bit of, of kind of pulling in some of those, um, I don't want to say commercial components, but it's almost, you know, kind of a, uh, um, a, a care provider type, uh, type lease structure and, and type housing. So a little bit of a nuance there, um, you know, inspections of the homes. We do this as part of the underwriting due diligence process. Uh, we make sure that, that Freddie Mac is able to get inside and complete some of the interior inspections for some of these homes that are in, in the deals that we're, that are collateralizing the loans. Um, and then I think, you know, there's some outside of those items, you also, uh, unlike a single loan to a single multifamily property, you know, you get benefits of, from cross collateralization of the homes and the pool, uh, under a single loan. Um, so that comes into play. Um, so I think those are those are some of the more uh, I don't want to call them qualitative aspects, but some of the more unique aspects that uh, that we look at for this segment of the market. Can I, and Andrew, maybe I can add a couple of things. So what's what's interesting about so when you look at a multifamily asset, you have a property manager on site, a tenant rents the unit for a lease, um, and then the following year uh, the tenant's lease is up and they renew it or they move. Um, here, you know, if you think about it, these these transactions are are typically on the low side, a hundred houses, single family homes. Uh, on the high side, up to four hundred houses. They could be uh, in you know ten or twenty different states. Within each state, they can be you know within you know five, six, seven, ten counties. Um, so they're very, very spread out, um, and the the other thing, when you look at this compared to multifamily, is that the leases are typically of longer term. They're not year to year, and they're not open to the market. They're typically, you know, a three or five year um, lease payment with uh, some some you know very low increases in in ongoing lease lease payments. Renewal options are built into the leases. They typically get renewed um, for another you know three or five years, whatever that is. What's unique about this is that occasionally we do have a house uh, go vacant. Like when we close these loans, they're always 100% occupied. And occasionally when a house goes vacant, um, what, what, what Capgro will do and others is they can, they can substitute a house for that vacant house. They can release that house and pay down a piece of the, the debt uh, appropriately. Um, and so what happens is over the, over time, our portfolios are typically 100% occupied at all times. Um, the other unique thing about it is 
when you have that many houses spread out over that vast area, just from a pure credit standpoint, I always like to use the example of a fire. You know, if, if an apartment building, if the downstairs corner unit kitchen catches on fire, it may damage multiple units within that, that garden style apartment or that high rise. In here, if there is such a calamity, um, it's just that house. It's not the entire portfolio gets gets dragged down, or the or you know it, it would be it's hard to rent a house uh, an apartment after a, a fire in a damaged building. Here, yes, we have a damaged house, and we'll fix that. But um, it's just the house, and that's it's an interesting sort of scattered site, um, you know, concept that 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 brings to a different credit metrics um, to. Uh, to our reviews of how we underwrite this stuff. So let's switch gears a little bit into social impact. So we have a great real estate. We're really comfortable underwriting it. So a great credit story. Ultimately, these loans will be backing our social bonds in the future. So I'm sure our investors who would like to invest into the social bonds would love to think about what are real social outcomes here. An example, we are saying this is underserved population, but is it really underserved? And I think, Matt, you touched on it very beautifully when we, once again, were preparing for this podcast, how there is uh, still a gap of funding for the specific product. Would you mind to touch on it a little bit more? Sure. Um, so it's not so much the funding as it is a gap and accessibility to the appropriate number of community-based homes. Um, the alternative again is an institutional setting and the institutional settings are predominantly governed and operated by uh, the state governments. Um, that has proved to, to not work out well. Um, and that is why the advocates and parents uh, for these individuals and, and overall guardians have been such staunch supporters of community-based housing and the further uh, allocation of available homes. Um, it, it's a problem uh, as such that in 1999, uh, the Olmstead Act was passed, which was a Supreme Court case that said institutional living is deemed segregated living and thus is not allowed. Um, that was in 1999. And so there was a, uh, a precedence to uh, deinstitutionalize completely and uh, integrate into full uh, community-based housing. Um, we are obviously in 2021. And I think by last count, there are only 14 or 15 states in full compliance. Um, so the demand it remains rich, um, unfortunately, um, because that means that uh, more individuals are unable to appropriate live in the community and are being forced to remain in an institutional setting. So the demand is high and, and unfortunately will remain high for this foreseeable future. Um, some positive news has come out recently, however, with the new administration that there is a full commitment to um, continuing to support and expand funding uh, for individuals with IDD and TBI and other cognitive needs. Um, 
as well as further accelerate the deinstitutionalization efforts at the state level and further support community-based uh, housing efforts. So we will see how that goes. Um, obviously, time will tell. Um, of course, we remain at the forefront of that. Um, state government uh, and the provider uh, community knows us uh, on a first name basis. Uh, they know that we are standing at the ready to buy uh, as many homes as they continue to need um, and are able and willing to remain patient um, as those deinstitutionalization efforts um, come to fruition. Um, but unfortunately, it does remain a waiting game. Um, you know, related to funding, um, I will say that uh, state and federal governments uh, will always remain supportive of uh, funding related to the behavioral health community. Um, it's because they, they have to. Um, and this is a, uh, a harsh statement, but it's one that is accurate, and is that um, programs for the elderly, um, veterans, homeless, et cetera, will be tinkered with all day long. Um, programs for individuals uh, who, uh, you know, on a intelligence bell curve are deemed to have uh, clinically the term mental retardation, uh, politically referred to as IDD, um, are unable to care for themselves and need a guardian. Um, and oftentimes that guardian is the state. So these are individuals that are wards of the state. Um, anytime there is a threat to the overall cut in Medicaid, um, the IDD community uh, firmly stands up and says, listen, you, you are not allowed and able to uh, mess with our funding. Um, and ultimately, although it may sound uh, draconian at first, um, the cuts, if any, are, uh, are slight. Um, and usually it's done through a backroom deal where it's made up some other way. Um, that is not to say that the provider community is uh, sitting on piles of cash. And truthfully, I don't know if there is uh, honestly enough money that could be uh, given to them for the services they provide. It is a tremendous amount of work, um, a, a great deal of responsibility, and oftentimes a thankless uh, action and service because the individuals are unable to appropriately emote um, their appreciation for uh, the care that they're receiving. So the funding is stable. Um, it's constant and often predictable plus or minus. Um, and that is how we have gotten comfortable on the real estate side. Um, but importantly, it attributes to the underwriting that we, uh, that we forego for each new client to make sure that they too are advocates and uh, staunch reporters within their local uh, state government and at the federal level um, to further enhance and, and uh, the funding streams that are made available. Mm -hmm. And Tony, I know you had great additions throughout the podcast. Any thoughts for any skeptics out there who still do not believe this is a social impact product with the really, really great social impact outcomes? Anything we should be considering? Anything else? Sure. So the individuals that are housed in, uh, in these homes 
it's it's I, I, it, it's not maybe this might get cut, but it's it's not Bill Gates's child that is living in the houses. Um, these are uh, you know th these are individuals that can be uh, again without families or aging families who can't take care of them anymore. Um, and uh, the the as Matt alluded to. You know the, the the care on site is typically 24 hours a day. There's typically three shifts. The care providers don't actually sleep at the houses. They're just there um, in in three different shifts, taking care of them. Um, the the uh, you know the, the 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 movement from out of institutions into uh, this kind of housing, uh, according to the studies, has proven to be extremely beneficial for a much better quality of life um, for the individuals. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I can't imagine us um, seeing anything that's not having a positive social impact considering the product. I mean, again, the house is, as Matt mentioned, it's indistinguishable from the front and mostly on the inside, you know, other than a bathroom or a, maybe wainscoting on the walls or a wheelchair ramp. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's housing in, you know, typical single family homes and typical single family neighborhoods, um, for people that may otherwise need to, uh, if, if this didn't exist, would live in more institutional hospitalized settings where they don't need to be. And Luba, I just want to make one last point on this topic, um, related to social impact. We, we have a saying in our office that we, um, uh, we do well by doing good. Um, and we mean that. And it's something that um, is our primary driver for the effort and uh, attention that we put in every single day to identifying um, the, the right home, the best home, and making sure that um, the services are able to uh, excel in that residential setting um, rather than just saying to a provider, um, hey, yeah, I have a home. It, it is what it is. Do you want it or not? Um, rather, we say to them, you tell us the location. You tell us the layout. Um, and then we go and vet the quality of that home. Um, and we determine uh, through a collaboration with the provider uh, by reading and reviewing inspection reports um, and neighborhoods to say, hey, this is a great home. We think this is a, an appropriate solution. There are oftentimes we will say, hey, we don't think this is a good home. And remember, we're in the business of buying real estate and leasing it. So one could say, Matt, what do you care? Um, you get the lease and then it, you know, it's their problem. That's not our outlook, nor is that ever the way we could uh, uh, take a view to be successful in this industry. Um, our partners uh, partner with us because of our integrity and our level of expertise, but more importantly, our commitment to um, serving the individual's needs who will ultimately live in this home um, to the best that we're able to on the real estate side by, and empowering the provider to execute the most appropriate and best services possible. So there is a lot that goes into it more than um, just saying, yeah, I own a bunch of these homes that are vacant. Do you want to come in or not? They're, they're actually kind of falling apart, but that's not my problem. Um, and unfortunately, there are some 
local landlords that take that approach. Um, and those are not the ones that, uh, you know, uh, Freddie would ever work with, nor are they're the ones um, that the providers we work with uh, are attracted to. They're attracted to the, the quality and the service that a group like Capro offers. Matt, I love the saying, do well by doing good. I think this is a great example how it starts with the need to really provide a unique specialized product to undeserved population. You have a great business model and expertise, and with the help of Tony's expertise, Freddie's commitment to support impactful projects like this, and also these deals backing our social bonds, it solidifies our 360-degree approach to our housing mission of supporting affordable housing. Thank you all very much for being here today and sharing your knowledge. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Optigo Extras podcast. To keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.